Well, good morning, church. Let me say right from the very beginning, uh, no one asked Pastor Matt to wear that sweater. <laughs> In fact, none of us would have approved that sweater had he asked us. I just need you right up front to know that. That's purely, that's purely on him. Well, good morning, everyone here at Essex North Avenue. Whether you're watching at home, glad every week to be able to be with you and to, to worship together. I asked our worship team to shorten up the worship a little bit this morning. We kind of cut a song out because I need to address a couple of things, talk about a couple of things um, with you before we get to the sermon. And so I still have a full sermon to go, so don't worry. I'm not going to cheat you on that. Um, but there are some things that we've got to talk about that uh, we need to put in the forefront. This past week, the town of Essex uh, didn't really do us any favors as far as kind of making our way forward. If you don't or you're not aware of this, the town of Essex on Monday night, uh, the select board passed a ordinance that has a mask mandate for all of the town of Essex. Now, what they did as well is they are the only township that we are aware of. There may be others, so I'm, I'm be real clear with that. But that we know of, they're the only uh, governmental group township that actually mandated that houses of worship are in that mandate. Um, the direction, the recommendations by the state uh, recommended that houses of worship be exempt. Town of Williston put a mandate in place as well, but they had houses of worship being exempt. City of Burlington, the previous week, put a mandate in place, had houses of worship as exempt. Uh, the select board of the town of Essex not only, you know, didn't not exempt the church or houses of worship in general, but they actually put the wording in that this includes houses of worship, which really is problematic for us as we try to navigate our way forward because we do believe in one sense that there's a crossing of a boundary of uh, separation church and state and speaking into the very heart of worship what you can or can't do or participate in. And yet in the same breath, we're missional in everything we do. We're, we, we love our town and we love our town leaders. In fact, just so you know, though we might be in some disagreement, we love them. They're volunteers that serve voluntarily. I talked to the chairman this past week of the select board and said to him, you couldn't pay me enough to do what you do because there isn't enough money to pay me enough to do what you do. So that's the quandary and spot we're in. So we've got to navigate what we're going to do with this and, uh, and how we're going to go forward. So let me tell you a plan and let me give you a little background. Now, I understand this morning that while I'm talking about this, I'm talking specifically to three different groups of people. Now, I'm going to put you all in a camp just so you know, but just so you know as well, there's variations in each of these camps, so you may not be exactly how I'll define it, but there's basically three camps of people. The first group I'm talking to, I know that we say the town of Essex put a mandate in place for masks, and there are some of you who are saying, absolutely no way, the government will not rule over us, we will defy them, we will burn our masks, and you know, off we go. That's one group. Another group says, we should have been masked all along, what's wrong with this church, why wouldn't you have been masked from the very beginning and get this thing right and do it? It's another group. There's a third group that goes, uh, what, what mask mandate? Um, <laughs> Uh, you want to wear a mask or not wear a mask? It does just tell me. If you want me to put it on, I'll put it on. You don't, you don't. I think I got one in my pocket somewhere in my car maybe. You just tell me what you want me to do. Now, please hear this. If you're in that last group, it's not that we love you more than the other children. <laughs> but you are certainly easier to parent. I just need you to know that right up front. If you're in one of the other two groups, we don't love you any less than the other children. But you are a challenge to parents, let me just tell you right up front. And please, but please know that makes you feel bad, don't. 
As the saying goes, sailors don't learn to be sailors on calm seas. And what that means is for the people that are the challenge, they're the ones that make leaders better leaders. And they're the ones that make sure you're looking at everything in every angle and walking through this and trying to figure it out properly and correctly. So we've, we're trying to figure out how to walk through this. Been in contact this past week and just so you know, a couple of things. Um, we have sent a letter, official letter to the town uh, asking them for reconsideration of this. We made a rationale as to why and some supporting documents asking them to address that. I wanted to don't you know right up front that with the town's decision about including houses of worship, that was not done with any animosity towards the churches. Uh, they, it, that was not any part of their thought process. They, they purely, clearly want to keep people safe. And they just said, no public places and churches are public places. So we included them. Now, the reason why we would push back against that is for a couple of reasons. Let me give you some quick background. Is one, we do believe that there's a separation of church and state, church of state issue. Um, when they come in and specifically some of the things they're saying is when you can mask in the service or not and temporarily remove it or not remove it. So they, there's some real specifics that gets into really what happens inside of the church setting. And we really believe that's a protected thing, of course, by the Constitution. And we have this battle, this pain, because we are missional. We're trying to reach people. We're not trying to pick fights. We don't want to be in contention. But as I shared in one of our elders meetings, but when some of these things happen, if you don't respond and say something, then you just kind of let it go. And that's not right either. We've got to step up and challenge that, but we want to do so in the right way. The other reason that we would be pressing for a challenge here is that they use the word public in a way that really doesn't fit churches. If you go look up a, 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 a accepted definition of public space, churches aren't in there. Uh, you can use this term. This is a legal term. Churches are not places of public accommodation. They are not places of public accommodation. What that means is that churches are basically for its parishioners. And yes, public can come in, but they do so specifically at the invitation of the church. And what I mean by that is a grocery, you can't look at a church the same as a grocery store or library because once those doors are open, they're just open. There's no qualification, but churches are different. And so we've tried to apply that with them to say, so this idea of just a public space really isn't the case. The other difficulty we're having is which, and this is, I mean, this is if uh, any select board member is here or happens to watch online, I say this very lovingly. This is part of the problem why I really think that governmental groups should stick with the basic areas of government stuff because when you get into something like this, there's all sorts of nuances. All they're thinking about is this big gathering, if you will, with the open door Sunday. How about Monday? How about Tuesday? How about the small group that meets? And, and those are considered actually private events. And so there's a lot of nuancing you have to figure out that they wouldn't have time to do. So where are we going to go with this and, and how do we follow through? So here's where we're kind of landed at. We're walking through with them, as I said, hopefully for a change. But we've got to figure out how to honor what they're trying to accomplish and how to do and, and be who we think that we should be and, and how we should act accordingly. So let me just say a couple of things. One of the things that happens, it's already happened already, as soon as we raise the question, there are certain people that will say, well, how can a church not care about protecting people? Because it seems like a very simple protection thing. How could a church be against that? I just want to tell you right up front a couple of pieces here that many of you won't even recognize some of the things we've put in place since COVID to keep people safe. And one of the things we're trying to say to people all along is that 
it should not come down. We're in a very culturally charged, charged culture today. Where you're right, you're right or wrong on one issue or another. It's very, very much kind of divided. And what we try to say is whether you want to keep people safe or not should not be determined by one piece of a puzzle, but looking at the whole thing. Let me just tell you a couple things here, read a couple things for you. What you may not be aware of, of things that we've put in place to keep people safe along the way. If you might recall some of this over time, immediately we had face masks, uh, we gave out face masks, personal hand sanitizer, water bottles to every person that walked through the door. Greeters positioned at any door, which means you can walk in and have a complete touch-free worship experience. We have enhanced increased air handling systems and filters, which you wouldn't necessarily know about, but we put those in as well to help keep the air cleaner. In this room specifically, it's got kind of a neg negative charge to it, which means if you can hear the blowers, and if you've ever been in here and said, my feet are cold, um, and I've, we've heard that often, it's because the system we have is drawing huge amounts of air at your feet so that particles come out, go down, and go out. And so those are things we've enhanced. We have a separate worship space in our video cafe. If a person doesn't want to be in a larger group, wants to stay masked, they can be in there where it's a much, a much more open area. Of course, on live streaming, we had all along for those that don't feel safe coming out. Our weekly meetings, but just about every ministry has been Zoomed available for people to tap into. Uh, we had volunteers all along ready to go out and shop for people who don't feel like they can get out or don't feel safe. So we have volunteers ready to go out and shop, pick up things for you. For those who don't have internet along the way and couldn't stream, and we have a group of those in our church. Some of our older folks who don't have internet and, or know how to use it, one of those two. And one of the things that we've done for them along the way, uh, Pastor Jim in her care department actually would record the services by uh, on a tape recording uh, so that somebody could call in and kind of listen on the phone to the whole service. That was one thing. Second thing, we do DVDs. We can deliver to someone who can't get out. And in fact, this, many don't know this. We actually went and purchased portable DVD players. So if a person really wanted to see the service, we'll put the DVD in, load it for them, hand deliver it. All they got to do is open it and push the button, see the service. We'll collect it back and get the next week ready. Care and counseling for those that were struggling with loneliness and isolation during COVID. Care and counseling for those who lost, lost loved ones uh, during COVID. Weekly temperature checks for every volunteer. So that if you came in and someone's greeting you, everyone had been temperature checked, all those things. Increased to COVID protocols for our children's areas. We actually paid for our volunteers and staff to get rapid COVID testing uh, coming up to the a weekend if there was any chance that they may have been exposed so that with confidence we're doing those kind of things. We've put all those things in place. Uh, to keep people safe. So here's where we're headed. Here's, where we're, here's the quote-unquote direction we're going to go. Um, as you come to church to worship, if you choose to wear a mask or remove your mask during worship in this room or in this setting, you have that freedom in which to do so. We will afford you that grace and freedom to do so. No one's going to ask you. No one's going to police it, anything like that. The recommendation is you can, to wear masks. If you choose not to, you don't have to wear a mask, and no one's going to say anything to you. If someone uh, wants to come to the church in person and they want to be masked, stay masked, and if they would prefer to only be around other masked people, beginning next Sunday, we'll turn the video cafe into a room that's purely for those who are masked and choose to remain masked. So if you do come and you want to be masked and you only want to be around masked people, that room will be available so that you have an option when you walk in the door immediately, a place where you can go be here on site and have that, uh, have that protection afforded to you. Uh, no one's going to be at the doors. No one's posting any signs. We're saying, hey, it is recommended. You have that freedom uh, 
to do what you choose as you walk in the door. And if you want to be in here, some of you are already masked, be masked and do so with great joy and confidence. If you walk in and you wish you had a mask, like you're right here right now and said, why mask if I had one? We've got them available for you in the thousands. And so we want, to, we want you to know that. And that's the approach that we're going to take. And also I would say that we are continuing with the town to say, we really feel that you ought to amend this. And we're telling them the same thing. What I just read to you is part of the letter. So they can see that we really do care about caring for people. You know, if, uh, if you're in a place where you might want to say, well, I think it's wrong and we ought to fight it, uh, I would just say that you know, there is a place to fight. We don't believe biblically this is the place to fight in such a way, but to continue to have that dialogue and say, hey, I think we can walk our way through this. Let me give you one key answer, one key question that I think would be on people's minds, and that would be, well, what's the difference between now and back in March of 2020 when there was a mandate and we closed everything down and we agreed. We said, yep, the governor said this, we're not gonna do another thing, we'll, we'll not meet when we opened. We kept distancing and practice all the guidelines. What's the difference? Well, there is a difference. One, I would say that when that mandate came back in that March of 2020, you need to know that even then, your leaders, which I hope you appreciate this, many of your leaders even then said, ooh, that's, that's kind of stepping across the line, but, Immediately, what we said was, there are so many unknowns. We've got to keep people safe. If you're going to err, you err on the side of safety, all those things. And it was about a two-second thought where we said, we, we completely comply and we'll work to do that. What's different now? Well, the truth of it is, back then, there was real uniformity and conformity in thought process. And truthfully, right now, it's gotten very blurred. Because if you're in this town, mask, Jericho, not mask. Uh, city of Burlington mask, but not for churches. And uh, the governor says no mandates. Uh, local town says mandates plus some. And so there isn't a uniform thought process about it. Uh, and specifically, even state to state, town to town, whatever it might be. So it's not the same as it was at that point. And at this point, we feel very strongly that the, the protection of church and state, separation of church and state, is very important as we walk in together and make some of those choices. And we'll still do so working to keep people as safe as we can. So there's our response to the church body um, as we go forward. You'll notice it's almost right down the middle. It's not leaning left or right, which means I feel I'm going to get shot at from both sides, but that's okay. Um, that's okay because we really believe it's the right thing. You know, in, in Jesus' day, uh, what he said often is when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it comes to following him, uh, when it comes to following Jesus, all are welcome, men and women, bondservant or free, Jew or Gentile. And I think he may add to that today, Jew or Gentile, Republican and Democrat, masked and unmasked, vaccinated and, unvac and unvaccinated, all welcome in the body of Christ. So that's where we're headed. If you have questions, I'm going to give you a list of all the other leaders. You can go talk to them. Um, very sincerely, if you have questions or want to talk about that at all, I'm certainly available this morning and anytime as we walk through it. We are waiting to hear back for, for a town meeting where we'll be there and um, walking through our our questions to them. Let me offer a prayer before we get into the word. Father, ah, don't let this kind of stuff distract us. We're about your kingdom and we're about your kingdom work. We're supposed to be citizens of eternity and heaven before we get all wrapped up in the things of this world. And it's so easy to get that, get that reversed. 
where we become so focused on all of this stuff that we really miss the picture of eternity. We want to do what's right according in your eyes and according to Scripture. We want to honor our local government. Lord, I say today, thank you for those select board members, for them stepping up to volunteer and serve. And thank you for what I believe was their genuine heart of saying, hey, we really want to do the right thing and protecting as many people as possible. Thank you for them. And I pray, I pray that you would protect them in their, in their roles for just about every decision they make. Someone's not going to like it. So protect them for that. And I pray that they would see our heart in all of this. That our heart is really to find out how do we walk with them and agree, but in this key piece, how do we stand for something different and do so with grace and with honor, honoring your name. So I, I do pray for them. I pray for our church family. Lord, everything we do has got to be based upon Scripture. Everything we do has got to be based upon it. So when we find ourselves ready to rail against the government or whatever, we've got to take a pause, look at what the Scripture said, and say, okay, it's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're about meeting people for Christ. We're about telling the story. We're about getting the, the, the word out and living missional lives. So keep us focused on that. I thank you for this body of Christ because though we joke about two sides, as I joke about being shot at by both sides, I, I really believe and know that the majority of our people are missional living and they get it. And they want to do what's right for the community, what's right for the kingdom. And they'll walk with us right along shoulder to shoulder as we continue on our mission. Now, as we get into the word and look at our message for this morning, I pray, Lord Jesus, again, no distraction. Don't let this distract us. And uh, as we go through your word this morning, open our hearts to your truth that you might change us, that you might meet us and encourage us with your truth this day. In Jesus' name, amen. I should say as we go forward, of course, we'll keep you posted uh, as, as we move forward, but uh, you now know our position and how you can respond to that. This morning, we're going to continue in our series, The Greatest Story. I'm going to condense it down a little bit, of course, of time because I had to take that piece out of it. And we talked about genealogy. We talked about the fact that Matthew uh, began his story, uh, the Christmas story. Well, he didn't begin the Christmas story. Before he ever got to the Christmas story, he began with a genealogy. I don't know if you've ever done a genealogy or not. Have you ever done that thing? A couple of Christmases ago, we got the, you know, DNA testing for our kids. They thought it'd be fun. And so we spit in the tube and sent it off to see what the results were. And if you've ever done kind of a, a you know, a, a genealogical tree, you kind of do that with the kind of the fun anticipation. Let's see, let's see who we're related to, you know, and the hope is that we be related to somebody great. That's kind of the hope. Usually it ends up you find you're related to some serial killer, not so great, um, you know, so, but the, but the intent is always, we love to see the good that we're associated with. We really don't really care about the bad that we're associated with. And that's always been true throughout all of history, which is why it makes it even more surprising that Matthew includes in his, in his genealogy the names of people that quite honestly you wouldn't normally name. He includes people that normally you'd keep out of that genealogy if you could because they didn't have great, great histories. Uh, they didn't have a great background, if you will, that you'd want to keep that out of there. And the truth of it is, as we, as we look at the genealogies and figure out, figure out the things, we realize that Matthew included them because he understood that they were not just a part of the story. They were actually at the heart of the Christmas story. We get and clearly see. That's why he's including them. Now, Matthew knows that as he's about to tell the greatest story ever heard, and as he starts by reading, including the people who had some bad and ugly points, he realizes that he's got to include them because people have to know that though the lineage of, of Jesus is correct and accurate, it isn't perfect. 
It doesn't follow this golden trail, if you will. And remember, we talked about this last week, that when you look at some of these names and some of the things that they've done, that they're your people. You know, they're our people. You know, we can relate to them. Uh, We are a part of the story because they are a part of the story. And it's the point of the whole story. So here's how Matthew began, Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We stop right there. Now, for the Jewish people and for anyone of moral character, when you get to the name of Rahab, you swallow really hard and have a big hiccup. And the reason you do that is we don't have Rahab's last name, and we don't have Rahab's last name anywhere in Scripture. We only have for her a label. We only have for her a title, and if you've read the Old Testament story, as we uh, have talked about at different times, you might recall that her title is prostitute. And throughout the story of Rahab, it refers to her as Rahab the prostitute. And so that's the title she wears, that's how she's known, and you know titles, Uh, Alexander the Great, Attila the Hun, Jabba the... (laughs) Scott the, yeah, thanks, yeah, thanks for stuttering there. You could have shouted out, great, fantastic, the stud, any of them work. Um, But yeah, so you get labels. But not only was she Rahab the prostitute, but she was also a Canaanite. And it's kind of the subtlety you have to remember is the Canaanites were the enemies of Israel. So not only is she not Jewish, but she's actually the enemy. She's actually the outside. So right from the beginning of the story, Matthew puts her in and includes her title, Rahab the prostitute. Now, this would really create tension because the law was clear back then, and God's law was clear, and that is you don't tolerate that kind of behavior in the ranks. Uh, And yet Matthew includes her as part of the story. Now, before I read the key verses of the story, let me give you the very, very quick background. Israel's a new nation. Israel's a brand new nation just recently coming out of of, of exile um, and trying to figure out who they are. They have recently been delivered and they're on their way to the land, promised them, the promised land, the land of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. So they cross the Jordan and they come to a walled city called Jericho. And they're conquering the land. I mean, because these other, these other people occupying it are all enemies. They're all against each other. So they have to go and take them on. But the Canaanites are in this walled city of Jericho. Joshua, who was the leader at that time, following Moses, sends a couple of young men to spy. He sends a couple of guys out and said, get into the city and kind of check it out. Give us a report back. So strategically, if we're going to have a battle, we kind of know what to expect. So the two guys go with her in the city. But after As they go, they're seen. And so they have to run for a cover. They have to run and hide. And so they do that and they run and they hide in Rahab's house, the house of prostitution, Rahab the the prostitute. 
The soldiers go to the king and said, we think there's a couple of Hebrew spies here. And the king says, well, go find them, go get them. So the soldiers go out to find them. And they head right to Rahab's house. And this is kind of an odd part of the story, I think, which is kind of unique. If you're out looking for two spies and your soldiers with all authority, you don't knock first. And yet they knock. Maybe they were knocking because they knew what kind of house it was. And you don't necessarily want to find the wrong people in there. But they don't barge in. They actually knock. She comes to the door and she says, can I help you? And say, hey, we're looking for the guys that came in here. Now, she, you know, they don't say they're looking for the guys that might have come in here. We're looking for the two guys we know came in here. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you came a little too late. Just before sundown, they ran out uh, of the city gate and uh, they're gone. But if you hurry, you can probably catch them. So off they go out the gates to see if they can't catch these two guys. When in fact, uh, she has hidden these two guys on her roof. And so that's where they're at. So they leave and she goes upstairs and has a conversation with them. And here's the conversation, Joshua chapter 2. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Now, that's pretty critical what she said, though it maybe doesn't mean a lot when you first read it, but there's a couple of key words that she uses that you really have to understand. She says, I know that the Lord, and the word that she uses for Lord is a very, very special word. What's unique about it is it's a word that, as a a Canaanite, we'd even be surprised she'd be using this word or even know about it. Because this word is so rarely used and so special referring to God that in fact, the very, very most religious of the Jewish people would never dare utter even the word, say the word because it was so sacred. They didn't feel like any human could actually utter this word for God or for Lord. What's also interesting is think about this. We're not sure how she communicated with the spies because you got two distinct languages. So somehow they're having this communication and we're not exactly sure how that takes place. But the word that Rahab uses is the the highest name for God that you could use. It literally meant the existing one. You say it doesn't sound like a great title. When it is when you think about it, the existing one who always was, who always is, who always will be. In this word, what they're referencing is that everything else comes and goes. Everything else came from something, but not this one. This is the existing one. This is the name above all names. This is the one who always was and always is and always will be. What she's saying is this. Um, I Hey, my people have all of their gods, but I know that the, your God, the God that you follow, that you serve, I know that he's the real deal. I know that he has given you the land that you're about to conquer. It goes on in the story. And said to them, I know the Lord, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to to Siam and to Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. 
Now, she uses that holy name yet again, but then on top of that, she then inserts a different word that she uses for God. She's covering all bases. But she says is this, so I know that your God, the Lord, is the existing one. He is the God of all gods. But then on top of that, she says, and I also know that he is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. I mean, he controls it all. It's a different word there that's used. What she's saying is this, Despite all that I have been taught, despite all of our people believe, despite all of the gods that I have been brought up worshiping, she says this, I believe your God is the God. It's a great statement of faith. And the wording that she is using, just so you know, is not the words of fear. Because it would be real easy to say, well, of course, she just said they're scared to death. She's trying to buy her way out. But the words that she's using are not the words of fear. She's using words that we actually believe would only come from the depth of understanding for her to declare God as this existing one. So she's saying to these guys, listen, your God is it. Continues in the story. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. They strike a deal. She makes a promise to them that I will protect you. And they in turn say, and we will promise you that when the day comes and we conquer this city, you will be protected. So the men escape. You might know the story. She lowers them down a rope because her house happened to be on the wall of Jericho. So she could lower them down out a window and a rope so they get back and they report to Joshua. The commander Joshua comes up with a plan of how they're going to take the city. Picture this. He assembles all of the soldiers of Israel. We're not exactly sure how many that would be, but we think probably two to 300,000 minimum. So he assembles them, he gets them together, and he says, okay, I got a plan. Here's what we're gonna do. And by the way, you don't need any weapons for the first six days. Um, tennis shoes, sneakers, good walking shoes would be good for the first six days. Uh, everything else will come on the seventh day because what we're gonna do is we're just gonna walk around the city. If you're a soldier, you're thinking, come again? Yep, we're just going to go on a walk together. We're going to walk around the city. Now, again, see this in color, not just black and white. I step back and I try to see the color of this. And if you think about this, I, I started doing some research and saying, so how big's the city and how long would it take them to walk around it? And so we have some of that information. And so the city actually was only 1.2 miles if you walked around it. That's not very far for a walled city. And especially if you now take 200 to, 300, 200 to 300,000 soldiers, the hardest part walking around this is how do you come up with a plan to walk around it because quite honestly with that number you can walk around this thing and I mean you can have a circle holding hands around and around and around and around so you actually have to come up with a plan practically how do we even march around this thing so that we do it together as opposed to the front team goes and they come around and they're back having lunch for four hours while the end guys are finally getting around this thing well they come up with a plan and they do just that day one they walk around the city 
they complete that. And they do this in silence. Day two, they walk around the city. Day three, day four, day five. Day six, they walk around the city. On the seventh day, he gives them specific orders that says this. Seventh day, we walk around again. But by the way, get rid of the tennis shoes. Put on your warrior sandals and carry your, your weapons. We're going to march around it seven times on this day, which now you see why it's easy to do. It's only a mile point two. We're going to walk around it seven times in absolute silence. Now, a picture, if you will, if you're inside the walls looking down and there's 200 to 300,000 people walking around the wall in absolute silence. That's a bit unnerving just by itself. But he says to them, we walk around in silence and that's a seventh time. The marching band, the trumpet players are going to start blowing their horns. And when they blow their horns, all of you shout. And by the way, when we do that, stand back. So they shout. And you know the story, right? And the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Israel takes the city and everything in it. But in the middle of this bloodshed, in the middle of this battle, in the middle of all of this chaos, if you can imagine, the walls just giving out and this battle that ensues. In the middle of all of this, verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, and bring her out and haul who belonged to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside of the camp of Israel. So just stop there for a moment. In the middle of all of this, God preserves them. Now, you got, that's pretty miraculous in itself, right? You got 200, 300 people in the middle of a battle and they come to one spot and every one of them knows, nope, we don't touch those people. I mean, listen, that's a miracle by itself. And then we go down to verse 25. And I love this, this passage. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. Here it is. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. That's no small statement. And she lives among the people until this day. Remember the story that, you, that, that you've just heard perhaps for the first time, that every Jew who had heard or who read Matthew's genealogy knew the story. I'm telling you this story, which some of you are going, hey, never heard it before. They all knew the story. I mean, all the Matthew's readers, they knew this story. And her life stands out not as Rahab, the savior of those men, but she still stands out as what? Rahab, the prostitute. She still has that label. And for them, her story stands out as an absolute, for many of them, an absolute aberration to holiness. It's an affront to a holy God. To the people reading this from the Jewish perspective, they just, they cringe at it because Rahab the prostitute as part of this story is just an aberration and an affront to a holy God. But Matthew knows that she's the point of the story. Now the Bible doesn't give to us the details, but somehow, somewhere along the way, a guy named Solomon, Salmon, I should say, sees Rahab's profile on Match.com and she's living among the people and he's looking for a wife and so somehow they connect and he says to her hey would you have you know coffee with me would you have wine with me and some dried fish and she says yes 
and they, they fall in love and they get married. They get married and they have a baby and they name him Boaz. I don't know why they would choose Boaz, but that's the name they chose. Boaz grows up and when he's an old man, he meets a young woman named Ruth. They get married, they have a baby, and their great-grandson is actually King David. Now, Matthew brings all of that up in the story of Rahab because she was the picture, I believe, of the illustration of the actual story of Jesus. I think he includes Rahab again because if you know her story, you get this picture of what Jesus came to do. Someone guilty of sin under the law. She's a prostitute. Normally, she would be stoned to death or sentenced to death. And even if not, she would have certainly been punished and ostracized as an outcast. But instead, she's actually protected and she's brought into the family. That's kind of key. And she lived among the people to this day. She lives with the people. And I would say to you that her story isn't too far from any of our stories. Now, it's interesting that Rahab had a title, a label called prostitute. You know, if we could peek into the hidden parts of your heart, if we had the ability to kind of look into your thought life, to look into your private battles, you know, I'll take it off of you. If you had the ability to look into my thought life, into the private areas of my life, if I'm honest, you would find you could probably label me as well. And I'm thinking if we could get past the, uh, all the layers of coverings and the things that we hide and look deep into your life, we'd probably see that you maybe have a label. It's easy to look at someone else like Rahab and say, shame on her, I'm glad that's not my, my label. But in fact, if the world could see your label, you might hang your head down as well, right? I've written down some possible labels for you. Don't be offended if, I, if you hear your name. <clears throat> I wasn't choosing names based on who I knew. I just needed them to rhyme. <clears throat> so maybe your title will be Wanda the, War the Worrier, um, Carrie the Coveter, Grace the Greedy, Jim the Jerk, um, Gary the Glutton, Debbie the Doubter, Adam the Addict, Jenny the Jealous, Harry the Hater, Betty the Bitter, Amy the Anxious, have I gotten yours yet? I can keep going, I got, I got a ton of them. And if you wanna play a game, you give me a name, I'll match a label to your name. That'd be, yeah, we, that'd be a fun time for us. I mean, here's the point. Matthew includes Rahab the prostitute, but he remembers this, I really believe, he remembers that he too had a label. See, he had the label called Matthew the tax collector, Matthew the sinner, because that was actually the title, Matthew the sinner, Matthew the tax collector. I'm thinking that maybe his thought process is that I'm going to write this genealogy and I think that I remember, I'll include her story because I remember my story. I remember the day that Jesus walked up to me while I was still collecting taxes, while I was still cheating people, while I was still taking advantage of them. And Jesus looked right at Matthew the tax collector and he did not say, once you quit being a tax collector... Once you quit being a sinner, once you repent of your, your evil behavior, once you promise to never do it again, and once you get a new name tag and a new label, then I want you to follow me. 
Once you do all that, then I want you to follow me. He never said that. I think Matthew remembered that Jesus walked up to him while he was still collecting taxes, while he was caught in the very act of cheating people, and Jesus said, just said to him, I want you to follow me. Well, I, do I got to clean up first? Right now. I want you to come follow me. I want you to leave here and come and join me. And Matthew knows that he's about to tell the story of that Jesus who said to him, I don't care about your label. You come and walk with me. See, I think he, I think he has that in the back of his mind that he knows that Jesus is no respecter of labels. Now, for those of you who are students of theology, let me give you something that you'll love. Make no mistake, Jesus is absolutely righteous, but his mercy is equal to his righteousness. He is absolutely holy, but his grace is equal to his holiness. And his forgiveness is big enough to encompass everyone, regardless of their label. And by everyone, that means you. And it means me. And so, because of the mercy, and because of the grace, and because of the holiness and the righteousness and the forgiveness of God, Rahab the prostitute would be able to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And if that doesn't overwhelm you, that a prostitute would be one of the great-great-great-grandmothers of Jesus, then you have never honestly looked at your own label and have said to him, thank you for your grace. I mean, that is so powerful. That is so overwhelming. If that doesn't move you, there's something wrong. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to be as incredibly transparent and honest if you can, as you can be. If people could be, peel back the hidden curtain of your heart and see the real you and see your real thought process and see how you really think, how you really live. If people could see who you really were, would you have a label? And some of you might be honest enough to say, yeah, man, if you saw my jealousy, if people could see my lust, if people saw my judgmental heart, if they saw my pride, if they saw my attitude, if they saw my greed, if they saw what I covet, if they saw what I give and don't give, if they saw my thought life. Friends, here's my statement to you as I end. Let's admit it. What a mess we are. We hide it with an incredibly good veneer. But let's be honest, we are just a mess. And the story of Jesus is he loves messy, messed up people. And so, the end of my sermon, back to our text. Salmon, the father of Boaz, 
who was the mother of Rahab. All people with labels come and follow him. Stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your truth this morning. Um, I look at the story, and admittedly, there would be some that would say, man, how do you get a whole Christmas story out of Rahab the prostitute? But that story is the sto- it's our story. And to think that um, she would be in this story, in this direct lineage of Jesus, boy, does that give me hope. So thank you for looking past my label and just seeing me and loving me and redeeming me. May that be every single person's prayer here. And for the person this morning who has never given their life and decided to follow you, again, I would just say, maybe today'd be the day where they would say, thank you, Jesus, for looking past my label. Forgive me. Make me clean. I will follow you. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Christmas.